0: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are. Thank you so much for tuning in with us today. Today we are joined by Scott Kugel, who is a professor of South Asian and Islamic Studies at Emory University. In his new book, Hajj to the Heart, Sufi Journeys Across the Indian Ocean, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021, and which is available to you, listener, as an open access enhanced edition online, follows the life and legacy of the influential Sufi scholar of Arabic, Hadith, and scriptural hermeneutics, Sheikh Ali Muttaki. Ali Muttaki left South Asia for Hajj to Mecca, where he eventually settled as an exile. Kugel provides a microscopic history of this figure by engaging a wealth of diverse Arabic and Persian manuscripts which have been translated for the first time into English and which cover Ali Mutaki's devotional writings or political orientations. The story also maps the legacy of Ali Mutaki via his disciples or the Muteki lineage across the Indian Ocean world into three generations that lead us into political contestations and courtly intrigue, such as with the Mughals and Gujarat, debates of authoritative roles and legitimacies of saints and the Mehdi, or Messiah, as understood in Islam, and relationship between Sufism and jurisprudence and scholarship of Hadiths. The story told here of the journeys by 16th century reformist Muslim scholars and Sufi mystics from India to Arabia will be of interest to anyone who writes and thinks about Sufism and Islam in South Asia and the Indian Ocean world and Islamic hermeneutics and reformist thought. In our conversation today, Scott and I spoke about the development of his particular project, um, but also how he became a scholar of South Asian Islam. Um, particularly because it's of interest to uh, Kavali music in undergrad. We also explore some of the journeys he took on uh, collecting archival materials and his ethnographic encounters during the process of doing archival research, uh, his choice of style and writing and and bringing in both the literary flavor and uh, literary and creative flavor, but also an academic one. And of course the life and legacies of Ali Muttaki and much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Scott Kugel about his new book, Hudge to the Heart, Sufi Journeys Across the Indian Ocean. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm so excited to have you and to spend some time with you having a conversation. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me onto the program.
0: Yeah, um, well, we have a tradition in our podcast to begin our conversation with a little bit about yourself. I am sure a lot of our listeners know who you are and your prolific work, but I wonder if you could give us a little bit of how you, you know, how this happened, how you got interested in Islamic studies, South Asian studies, and perhaps what led to this particular book that we're gonna talk about today.
1: Well, sure. Um, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I was just in religious studies in a very small college, uh, Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia. <laughs> that had no Islamic studies whatsoever. And so I looked at the situation and I felt like I was getting a rounded religious studies education, but no Islam at all. Plus, you know, my father had been to Iran a couple of times as a lawyer when the Shah's regime was still in place um, and had brought back some beautiful books from Iran that the Shah's regime had done. Of course, the Shah did many awful things, but one of the things that they successfully did was to produce beautiful literature about Iranian architectural and cultural heritage. So these books were in my house as I grew up. And I had it in my mind to take a year off from my undergraduate studies and go to Egypt and to start learning Arabic. And the religious studies training that I got as an undergraduate with a big gap that was shaped like Islam also pushed me to do that. And so that's how I actually got really interested in Islamic studies because of the students that I met at the American University in Cairo, Mm -hmm. and also some of the teachers that I had there. Um, I was really lucky to study with Suraya al-Turki, who was an anthropologist, um, and Huda Lutfi, who taught a course on Sufism Mm -hmm. in Egypt. And um, Huda Lutfi got me to read the Masnavi by Rumi for the first time. (laughs) And I wrote a very bad undergraduate paper (laughs) (laughs) on one of the episodes there where the Khalifa Omar is woken up by Satan and told, you know, get up out of bed, you fool, you're going to miss the dawn prayer. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was um, an amazing experience for me in my undergraduate time. And then coming back from that, I had a radio program at my little college, and I encountered there the first LP record, you know, those black vinyl records that we used to have in the old days. My students now have no idea what what those are, but this was the first one that was recorded by Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. Wow. And um, yeah, and spread on the WOMAD label for those of you who remember world music when it first hit the markets. And so there it was in the radio station, and I had never heard Hawali before, and I put it on the record player, and this voice, you know, powerful voice, and the percussion uh, just filled up the radio station and also filled up my heart. And I thought, what is this music about? You know, I didn't know Punjabi, I didn't know Persian, I didn't know Urdu, I didn't know where this music was coming from, but I knew I had to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of propelled me toward South Asian Islam, mm-hmm. was the voice of Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are many people out there listening, you know, who also had that as a kind of first experience or a, I won't say an initiatory experience, but a kind of uh, sparking a flame of enthusiasm and love for South Asian Islam through his voice or the voice of the Sabri brothers or Abida Parveen or, you know, other great artists of that genre. So, um, yeah.
0: That's amazing. That's, That's definitely it. <laughs> insightful that it's like these little moments in life that let you this way.
1: I, I have to admit, I stole the record from the, from the, Radio station. I I put it under my coat and I just walked out with it because I thought I have to listen to this more.
0: Right, right.
1: And I took it to my dorm room and I think I played it for three days continuously until my roommates and the people down the hall came to me and said, You need to turn that record player off.
0: That's amazing.
1: <laughs> so then I, I learned to control my interests a little bit and focus them. And it took me to graduate school. And uh, I ended up writing books like this Hudge to the Heart that just came out. So
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, I mean, we're going to get into so much of the aspects of this book, but... just really intrigued by the archives and I'm you know and you list them in the book but I'm like how did you find these sources what was the journey like for you um as a scholar tracking these sources down there's some moments in the book where you talk about encountering the folks the lived experience but it seems a lot of it was archival like you had this relationship with text and so what was that like
1: so the archival work for this was done when I was a little bit young I have to admit um I did it in my late 20s. And it was actually, most of it was done for my dissertation.
0: And uh-huh. it just never,
1: never got published. Uh-huh. So uh, it was been sitting around for a very long time. And uh, before I revisited it, yeah. and reworked it, mm-hmm. um, and added a lot of the uh, visual materials, and also the audio recordings, mm-hmm. based on my lived experience um, traveling and recording music Mm -hmm. over the the decades that this research the archival textual research had basically just sat there on the shelf Mm -hmm. so uh, that is to say i did it when i had much more energy Mm -hmm. (laughs) to travel and it took a lot of stamina you know this was traveling by train i didn't have money to fly from hyderabad where i was based in the deccan to the various archives in Calcutta, where the Asiatic Society is, to Patna, where the Khudabakhsh library is, a fantastic library. If anybody um, is able to get to Patna, that is one of the richest libraries for Arabic-Persian literature, manuscript, handwritten books. Mm -hmm. Um, In Patna, which is not a city that many people go to, you know, the the capital city of Bihar, which people think of as, oh, my God, that's the backward, most impoverished, um, civil war-ridden uh, province in India. But this library is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. To Rampur, <clears throat> where the erstwhile princely state ruling family of Rampur had amassed an enormous collection of Arabic and Persian books. And it's... um a beautifully outfitted library now in the former royal palace, mm. but you know Rampur is not easy to get to, um, and then out to Rajasthan to Tonk. Tonk Sharif is a tiny town out toward Ajmer, mm. kind of between Ajmer and and Jaipur. And again, it was a princely state, so the Muslim ruler of Tonk, under British colonialism, had a privy purse and invested a lot of his money buying. Manuscripts that was considered part of the status of being a Muslim prince in the colonial system Mm -hmm. And that library is now a public um, Institution and some of Ali Mutaqi's books that don't exist anywhere else in the world exist there Mm -hmm. out in the desert in Rajasthan and then of course Gujarat in Ahmedabad a very very rich Location an amazing city just in terms of its built heritage and very proud of its um, medieval uh, heritage. It's become a a world heritage site through the UN now. So Ahmedabad is really um, an amazing place. And part of what makes it amazing is these several archives that have really rich libraries of Arabic and Persian material. So I think many Islamic studies students have a false notion that if you're studying Arabic, the place to go is the Arab world to look for texts. And that's just not true. Arabic manuscripts traveled much more widely, Mm -hmm. right, than what we think of as the Arab world. And South Asia is extraordinarily rich in Arabic Mm -hmm. manuscripts. So if there's one thing I can say to students and younger people, and one thing that I think the book proves is that uh, South Asia is a treasure trove Mm -hmm. for people reading Arabic Manuscripts and they'll find things preserved in South Asia that may not exist in Syria or the Dar al-Qutub in uh, Cairo mm-hmm. or manuscript libraries in Morocco, as wonderful as those places are.
0: right? Right. Yeah, no, it was fascinating to see where you were going and the archives you were using. And of course, I should tell our listeners that this book is open access and available online and has a, a company um, website that has wonderful resources and a lot of um, extra material online too that folks can access as well, aside from the hard copy. Um, so I wonder if we could get into some of what the broader main intervention of the book is before we get into some of the particulars um, and some of the theoretical work that you're doing. So um, for people who haven't heard about this book, um, Hodge to the Heart, Sufi Journeys Across the Indian Ocean, what would you say um, is what what you're trying to do?
1: Well, that's hard to say, to tell you the truth, because I try to do several intertwined things in the book. Uh, and, and if you read it, you, you realize that pretty quickly that there are several stories going on at the same time. Okay. And I think that's a function of it having been largely written in terms of the textual exploration earlier in my life, and then rewritten um, in terms of an engagement with uh, sound archives and visual archives and the... the more cu- rich cultural history of Gujarat province. Later in life, mm-hmm. after I was exposed to a much wider range of scholar friends, mm-hmm. and I should mention especially um, Professor Roxani Margheriti, mm-hmm. who is my colleague at Emory University and is a specialist on the Indian Ocean and trade and travel mm-hmm. across the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. and that helped me to reframe some of the stories that I was encountering as simply. Sufi literature and Hadith literature when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I was seeing them now through the lens of travel and trade. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the Sufi scholars that I'm studying in the book were moving from South Asia to Arabia and back um, and sending books and ideas back and forth. And so it's that idea of The conceptual boundary that we have, that South Asia ends with the landmass of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and that Arabia is somehow a different landmass and a different cultural zone, that that is just not true for the pre-modern, pre-colonial period. Mm -hmm. And it's a function of colonialism that these connections that were so intimate and rich in the past get severed, Mm -hmm. right? And we now have this worldview constructed for us by the Cold War and the CIA that there are different regions that are distinct from each other, right? right? South Asia is distinct from Central Asia, is distinct from the Middle East. So that's the kind of um, larger question that I was trying to address by exploring this largely 16th century archive of Sufi texts that were generated as people were moving back and forth between Mm -hmm. largely Gujarat and the Deccan and Arabia. Mm
0: -hmm. And I love the fact that the story that's really unsettling um, geography via landmass and engaging with the Indian Ocean is being told through biography. And I think this is one of the things that you're trying to do in the book, which um, you said that was inspired by the work of Richard Eden. Is like, what role does biography in the story of one person um, play? Right. And how not to get lost in that. So did you want to talk about that as like a theoretical intervention as well? Yes,
1: you mentioned uh, Dick Eaton, and he's been such a massive influence on so many of us working in South Asia, uh, whether it's Bengal or the Deccan or Punjab. He's written, you know, important studies on all those regions. But the book that really influenced my thought for this project is called The Social History of the Deccan, Eight Indian Lives. And what he does is he takes about uh, 450 years of the history of the Deccan, looking at politics, religion, culture, um, caste, and ethnic group, and dividing up that 450 years into slices. And each slice is investigated through the life of a person that lived and lived an influential life at that time, including Sufi masters, um, Hazrat Daraz, the great Chishti who's buried in the Deccan in Gulbarga, a a bandit in the Andhra countryside, um, just a whole range of characters, Hindu, Muslim, of different castes and different classes. And so he tries to really do an expansive social history, including religious history of this very varied region that we call the Deccan, South Central India, by looking at biographies of discrete individuals. And his challenge in that book is how do you use the life of a person to connect to much larger issues and connect a kind of macro history to the micro history of an individual life. And so I use that as a model. Mm -hmm. And the lives that I'm really exploring are three Mm -hmm. in particular. Of course, there are many people mentioned in the book, but it's really Ali Mutaqi, who was a Hadith scholar and also a Sufi master from Burhanpur, a little city in the Deccan, the Northern Deccan, not well known anymore. It's nowadays in Maharashtra.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And his student, um, Abdul Wahab Mutaqi, who was from Mandu, again, a not very well known city anymore, um, that was considered to be uh, a city in Malwa, right? Which is now Madhya Pradesh, central India. And then there is uh, Abdul Haq Muhaddis Delavi. Who most of your uh, listeners will recognize as one of the preeminent intellectual Sufi figures from uh, early modern South Asia. And Abdul Haq was a Hadith scholar, as well as a Sufi master and wrote books in many, many genres, some of which were well known, like um, his Akhbar al akhiar or which my teacher Bruce Lawrence translates as News of the Pious, Mm -hmm. which is a collection of biographies of great Sufis in and around South Asia, that's still used by many people as a go-to source. Um, but some of Abdul Haq's books have not been published. Um, many of them haven't, such as uh, one called Maraj al-Bahrain fi Jamaa tariqayn. So that would be the meeting of two C's um, in the union between the two paths. Mm-hmm. And the two paths he's talking about here, the tariqayn is the path of jurisprudence, fiqh, and the path of Sufism, Mm tasawwuf. And he's saying that fiqh and tasawwuf, law and mysticism, you could say, got separated Mm -hmm. as discrete um, discourses, as particular ways of engaging Islam with their uh, their own methods of scholarship and their own authority. And he says, it doesn't have to be this way and it shouldn't be this way. <laughs> and so his vision of how do we return at least ethically to the time of the Prophet Muhammad, we do that now by rejoining these two paths that got separated in the past, the path of law based on Quran and, fiqh, uh, Quran and Hadith, and the path of Sufism, which is based in his view on adab um, and akhlaq, that is refined manners and uh, ethical virtues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's one of the texts that I engage um, in, in this book, Hajj to the Heart. Mm-hmm. So, Abdul Haq Muhaddis Delevi is another person who's extremely important and um, is, a, is a prime figure throughout this book, both as a source for many of the um, other biographies of earlier people. I mean, we know about them only because Abdul Haq collected their sayings and recorded their biographies. And then Abdul Haq himself becomes a major figure at the especially toward the end of the book,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we explore his life and his ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, I'll also say to the listeners, um, one of the things I loved about the book was um, the vignettes you had at the beginning of each chapter. Uh, no, I, I think it's fantastic. And I wanna know, I mean, what inspired this? And it also really showcased, I mean, you have a creative side, but I mean, obviously there was a different style coming out here. And so, um, and do you wanna say something about this?
1: Well, I'm glad that you liked them. <laughs>
0: you do not like them? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I, I really didn't know what to think about them, mm. um, even as I was doing them. Okay. So just to inform the, the, the folks who may not have read the book yet or are thinking about reading it, each chapter begins not with a typical introduction right. uh, in academic prose, but with an almost novelistic vignette, um, a tr- an attempt to recreate an event in the lives of the people that I'm studying mm based on documentary evidence that I find in the manuscripts, but recreated through my own imagination
0: mm-hmm.
1: with dialogues, with observations that they might've had, including, you know, a shipwreck, um, a young boy listening to kavali late at night um, in the city of Burhanpur um, to a Sufi encountering the Mughal emperor Jahangir in mm-hmm. the throne room. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Shobana, honestly, I I struggled a lot with this because as you said, it's a different tone of voice. It's a different kind of writing. It's stepping across an invisible line that many of us academics feel or sometimes enforce (laughs) about what's objective and what is subjective. And so for me, um, I guess I thought, hell, I've earned the right to be subjective for a little while. And I do it in carefully, you know, carefully circumscribed zones, like the whole book is not subjective, only the introductory portion of each chapter. But it also gave me a chance to maybe exercise my pen in a slightly different way, as if I were writing a novel, as Mm -hmm. if I were living the lives of the characters, rather than just writing about them from a distance. And for me, it was really important to do that because the the archival work can be quite alienating. You know what I mean is you're encountering these voices through the written page, Mm -hmm. but those written pages are often very difficult to read. These are in Shikasta script, Mm -hmm. um, handwritten, sometimes with lots of wormholes or white ants have eaten the pages. Mm -hmm. Very often sentences are interrupted because the page is missing or broken, Mm -hmm. and you have to fill in from your own understanding what the manuscript is saying. And sometimes uh, with, especially with Ali Mutaki's work, there is no second manuscript Mm -hmm. to go to for reference or to fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. So you're working with a single unique manuscript damaged. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: How do you with objective authority say, okay, this is what the text says. I'm gonna make a translation of it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, that I took that insight and I thought well I've been filling in right. with with the best of my understanding what I can based on this very fragile and somewhat fragmented documentary evidence mm. Mm. why don't I just upfront that right and say that a scholar can actually try to imagine what the what the life worlds of people back in the 1600s were
0: mm.
1: like. Mm. And and write about it in that mode, as if we were with them. Right. And I tried to make their voices fresh.
0: Right. Right.
1: So that's what those vignettes were about, and it was really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. And until the point where I sent it to the publisher, yeah, I wasn't sure whether those were going to stay in or get yanked out. Mm-hmm. And I thought, even if the publisher says, "Yeah, it's good, let's do it," I might yank them out
0: mm-hmm.
1: because mm-hmm. I wasn't sure that that it worked um to make the scholarship accessible and vibrant in the present but you know if you are reading it and enjoying it then it worked
0: yeah i so appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that process with us because i think we have a tendency to think that once a book is published it's like in perfect form and we don't struggle with things on the page um but as I'm hearing you talk, I think one of the things I found most compelling about the vignettes is that I think um, there's been a tendency for folks to think of archival research, as you said, as this objective enterprise that maybe different from ethnography, where it's like maybe very subjective. And the idea that you forefronted the fact that you were, like so much of your relationship with the archive is what resulted in the storytelling, meant that that was the center, not the center, but you know, started each chapter. Um, I think methodologically it was quite powerful Powerful. And I don't know, I mean, that resonated with me. Um, and that also helped me set myself into the chapter a lot. Um, and I was looking forward to it in every chapter, actually. I appreciated the compliment. And it also gave us insight to you as a, as a scholar. But I don't know, maybe there's a novel in you that you want to write one day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, maybe there is. Maybe there is. Of course, okay. I, you know, I, I, I was very interested in creative writing when I was younger, yeah. um, <clears throat> meaning in college. And even in graduate school, I I tried to continue writing stories or poems, but graduate school has a way of um, squeezing that out of you Mm -hmm. um, to make room for other kinds of work and other kinds of intellectual engagement. So I I did find that my uh, literary uh, interests became increasingly confined to translation.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And of course, I've had fun with that, translating Ghazals especially translating love poetry and Sufi poetry, has been a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, my previous book, um, um, "When Sun Meets Moon," was mm-hmm. all about that, um, and, and it's it's great. I mean, I don't, I, I love translating, and I admire translators. I learned so much from people like Michael Sells wow. uh, and Karl Ernst, um, who are really expert translators from Arabic and Persian. Um, but to actually take the leap mm-hmm. of trying to write like a novelist completely detached from an original you know at least as a translator you can have it one hand clinging to the original mm-hmm. even as you float on this you know like you're you're holding on to a a piece of driftwood right. even as you're in a stormy sea of creative possibilities uh but a translator can hold on to something mm-hmm. but when you're writing a vignette or a short story or god forbid a whole novel you're really just completely afloat right, right. but that also means you're completely open mm-hmm. to the possibilities you don't have to stick to the facts right.
0: right Right. so
1: in this book it is it is a scholarly book it is an academic book so i, I didn't go completely adrift mm-hmm. um everything that i recreate in the vignettes is based on events that were reported by or about Abdul Haq on mm-hmm. this delay. Mm-hmm. I just filled it in the details.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved it. And I think it's hard. it's mm-hmm. inspiring. And I'm sure a lot of, um... Yeah, young scholars and grad students will be really compelled by that. And maybe that'll be um, inspiring for them as well. Um, well,
1: I wouldn't suggest that anybody do it for their first book. First book. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> when yeah. going up for tenure and, and other things, there are, there are practical considerations and professional uh, decisions that have to get made. So you do have to prove yourself
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a, in a more constrained manner mm-hmm. to, to get a professional position as a scholar. But once that's achieved, then, then, then there are new possibilities that open up for different mm-hmm. kinds of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a textualist, like I was trained largely textually and historically, one of the big challenges that opened up for me was doing ethnography.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, that right. wasn't really part of my grad school training, but it's something that I encountered later on in life as I met people like Joyce Flickiger Mm -hmm. Um, who became my colleague here at Emory. She's recently retired, but she and I actually met in Hyderabad at the Henry Martin Institute when I was a grad student back in, I think, 1995. Um, And she's the first ethnographer that I ever met um, Mm -hmm. who was working on a project. Um, Although I should also say Kathy Ewing was one of my teachers at Duke Mm -hmm. University, Mm -hmm. and she is certainly an ethnographer, um, worked in Pakistan, doing some amazing work among kalandars and sort of antinomian Sufi characters mm-hmm. whom she met on the street. Mm-hmm. But when I was studying with Kathy Ewing, I never imagined that I would do that kind of work mm-hmm. in ethnography. Mm-hmm. But after meeting and having long conversations with people like Joyce Flukiger, I realized that, hey, that is that is something I can do, even though I'm primarily a textualist. Mm-hmm. And in in this book, Hudge to the Heart, Um, There wasn't a lot of ethnography there, Mm. um, but I was able to bring in contemporary life worlds through recordings of (laughs) kawali and other kinds of darga rituals. Mm. Um, And there are, I think, three audiovisual recordings that are integrated into the the tome version of the book. And I Mm. should give a a call out to the tome project, T-O-M-E, which is this project which encourages... Uh, academic publishers to put their books online as free downloadable books Mm -hmm. that can also be what they call digitally enhanced. Mm -hmm. So this is all new terminology to me as -hmm. a kind of old fashioned scholar. Digital enhancements means you can implant the text with visuals, with audio, Mm -hmm. with um, images Mm -hmm. in a much more robust and engaged way than you can with a printed book
0: Mm, yeah and
1: so yeah so i'm very grateful to the people at the tome project and i'm lucky that my university emory um is one of the universities that participates in this Mm. uh multi-university project and is trying to get trying to get academics to see the benefit of having free downloadable high quality academic books
0: Yeah. yeah
1: And to uh, to get out of the 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 the, the narrow sense of publishing, uh, where you publish for a profit.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's fantastic. And yeah, a huge shout out to Tome Books for doing that, especially because it'll be a great teaching resource to be able to read the text and then to access these visual material culture that goes along with it. Um, and I'll definitely include a link in the in the podcast so um, Thank you can awesome. access them as and, well. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I would, I would encourage uh, scholars who, who'd have a great book project or who are searching for a publisher to when you find a publisher, ask that publisher if they would support you applying for a tome grant Mm. because that's what that's how it works you have to write a uh, a project proposal send it to tome and then if tome likes your project they will work with your publisher and actually give a nice subvention to the publisher Mm. to pay the publisher for the privilege of then printing or um publishing it digitally in a free downloadable version so it's kind of a kind of complicated process but as an author you work with your publisher to engage with the tome project. Mm,
0: mm, That's great, yeah. (laughs) And that
1: way you get to publish with an academic press, which is important for tenure and promotion, and yet also produce a free downloadable book that people anywhere um, without paying money can access.
0: Right. Yeah, it sounds very equitable, which is great, yeah. Um, should we get into some of the pieces, some of the the little bits, um, though we won't be able to cover everything? Um, maybe we could talk um, about Ali Mutaki and, like, the first few sections, um, especially in terms of his youth and who this figure is and some of his contacts and perhaps why he's important to the story that you're telling. Yeah.
1: Sure. So, yeah, Ali Mutaki, um, who's often known as Ali Mutaki al-Hindi, right, because he he's known by... Um, through his Arabic texts, primarily in hadith, uh, most historians or of, of Islamic studies know him as a great hadith scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, many people know him as Sahib Kenzel umal right? Kenzel umal was the name of one of his books. It was a collection of hadith reports, um, mostly um, taken from Suyuti, and reworked according to the chapters of Fiqh. So according to Masala, so according to legal issues that that hadith report is relevant to. So this was a way for Ali Mutaqi to try to um, bridge the gap between hadith specialists and practical moral questions or legal questions. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge work that he um, was kind of working on and editing and, and improving throughout his life. Um, And the biographies of him say that up up until his death, on his deathbed, he was still scribbling notes about this Hadith collection. Um, And uh, he died in Mecca again. Mm -hmm. So he's a figure from South Asia, who in some ways was forgotten Mm -hmm. in South Asia, Mm -hmm. except through his work as a Hadith scholar. Mm -hmm. But his engagement with Sufism and his many Sufi texts, especially about Sufi ethics, um, have not been read very widely. Mm-hmm. And I found him really interesting because he prefigured much of the reform minded Sufism, reformed with a deeper engagement to Hadith, mm-hmm. that we modern folks identify with the Deobandi movement. Right. right. And so, uh, one of the purposes of this book was to say, "Hey, the reformist Sufism um, that we identify as Deobandi actually has much deeper roots mm-hmm. and a much earlier origin
0: mm-hmm.
1: that has been kind of forgotten, mm-hmm. because the, the 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 Sufi master and Hadith scholar who was working in that." Um, working in that field and putting together those ideas, left South Asia, mm-hmm. moved to Arabia, and never really went back, mm-hmm. or tried to go back, but mm-hmm. was prevented from going back by various political events. Yeah. And and that's where the story gets complicated, right? Because the story that I tell is not just about Ali muttaqi and reformed Sufism, it's also about the, the Sultanate of Gujarat, right. with Ahmedabad as its capital, which was an independent Sultanate when Ali Mutaqi was alive and active there but was very um, um, uh, threatened once with conquest by Mughal Emperor Humayun and then actually conquered um, and held by the Emperor Akbar. Mm -hmm. So this what was an independent and very vibrant and fascinating independent sultanate in Gujarat became just another province Mm-hmm. although an important one, of mm-hmm. the Mughal Empire. Mm-hmm. And that prevented Ali Mutaqi from being able to really come back and get a, a, a foothold in South Asia and mm-hmm. build a school of thought in South Asia. It took uh, it was a much more complicated story. And so it, it took several generations for then Abdul Haq, Muhaddis Delevi, to go to Arabia, meet Ali Mutaqi's major successor after Ali Mutaqi had already died, and then return back to delhi with some of the texts and ideas of this school and rework it in a form that would be recognized as Naqshbandi mm-hmm. in in the in the mughal era and then these these ideas would later resurface and uh, in the Deoband school.
0: For me, it was so fascinating to see how some of the, um, the genealogy of these ideas, right? In relationship to the different approaches to Sufism, relationship with saints, um, again, this reformers project, all of this were coming together and you just did a fantastic job teasing them out and then kind of sending it in the the final chapter of like what this has meant, right? And what was this experience in exile, like um, Ali Mutaki in, 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 you know, in Mecca? and Cause that becomes an important part of his maturing process, but he was also there by force, right? He was exiled, right? So what was that like?
1: Well, yeah, he was, he definitely, he was exiled. Um, um, he left Gujarat when Humayun invaded and the Sultan, Sultan Bahadur Shah of Gujarat, who Ali Motaki had supported and advised, um, had lost the battle. And so Ali Motaqi left him on the docks at a little town called Diu, which was a very important international port off the coast of Gujarat and just left him there and Mm. said, that's it. You know, I'm abandoning you and I'm taking refuge in Mecca and off he goes. Mm. So that was a disaster. But when he arrived in Mecca, Ali Motaqi of course, you know, did the Hajj and did all of the devotional um, engagements that one does. But more importantly, he found a circle of Hadith scholars Mm. who were very, very active. And this was Ibn Hajar Haythami, um, an Egyptian, and um, kind of carrying on the legacy of Suyuti and Ibn Hajar Asqalani and great Hadith scholars of an earlier era. And so Ali Motaqi found that, wow, Hadith studies was was alive, well, and vibrant
0: mm-hmm. in
1: Mecca. And he integrated himself very quickly into this community. And Ibn Hajar Haythami actually elevated him to a really uh, respected position in that very competitive circle of Hadith scholars <clears throat> to the point where Ibn Hajar Haythami, who was a pretty acerbic, um, non-mystical-minded guy, asked for a Sufi initiation from Ali Mutaqi and took hand, took bay'ah with him, um, which kind of amazed the circle of Hadith scholars there because that was not a normal thing um, for a Hadith master to do. Mm-hmm. So Ali Mutaqi found a very nourishing environment um, in, in Mecca and made the best of it. But he was alienated by many things um, like coffee drinking. Mm-hmm. It's one of the fascinating little episodes that's preserved in his biography that he got there and he found all of these Hadith scholars were drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that coffee was spread by Shadowy Sufis, right? In an earlier era from Ethiopia to Yemen, from Yemen up to Mecca and other cosmopolitan centers. And so what began as a way to stay awake all night and do zikr was being then used more generally by Hadith scholars and others who may not have been Sufi in orientation. And Ali Muttaki got there and he thought, this is weird. Mm-hmm. We don't do this in South Asia. Coffee hadn't really spread to his part of India yet. And he said, this is, this is looking too much like wine. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was a, a, a great deal of debate going on among jurists at the time about the status of coffee. So that's a, a little incident um, in his life. He also criticized some of his friends in Hadith scholarly circles for being too competitive and for amassing money mm-hmm. and living in big fancy houses. So this is where Ali Mutaqi's Sufi orientation as a hadith scholar came into play mm-hmm. and he began to criticize some of the more worldly pursuits of religious scholars mm-hmm. in in mecca and um he himself would be a little bit um more anti-social i guess you'd say in mecca he didn't go out much oh, yeah. he would go out for friday prayers and then quickly go back to his house um, but at the same time he was a major player in helping scholars and students and pilgrims from South Asia to make the Hajj. He had money that was given to him first by the sultans of Gujarat as they tried to hold on to power, and later by the Ottoman sultan in terms of the uh, wazifa, uh, uh, an amount of money that they would send every year to be distributed to pilgrims and students in Mecca. And Ali muttaqi was one of the trusted people to distribute these funds. So he had an enormous amount of money at his disposal, which he didn't use for himself.
0: He's a very fascinating person, like very just, you know, lots of curiosities, lots of interesting tendencies. How did all of these experiences really inform the way that he taught about Thought about Sufism, like um, I know, in in Chap the Satchels three and four, you really get into some of his like ideological leanings in terms of responses to some of the movements that are coming up, issues of like the the issues of you know sainthood, and so obviously we won't be able to cover all of this stuff. But are there you know a couple of um, points that you'd want um, our listeners to know in terms of what where he was, um, you know, what his approach to Sufism is? You know, maybe that's a uh, one way to think mm-hmm. about it.
1: Yeah, I, I would say he's, he, he takes a, a reformist and very ascetic approach to Sufism, which is counter to what we may think of as the very rich medieval elaboration of Sufism in South Asia, right? Which is a rich engagement with music, right. with love poetry, um, a kind of um, embrace of diverse practices whether that's darga practices or sometimes um, even cross-dressing Sufis. Um, this was one of the amazing things I encountered doing this research as a, a figure. I talk about him very briefly in the book, but he's amazing. Uh, Sheikh Musa Sada Sohag in Gujarat, who um, he dressed as a woman. And there actually are Sada Sohagis. There's a whole movement that traces their origin to him. I know in in Hyderabad, my Urdu teacher um uh, Doctor Avdesh Rani Bawa. She was a student in the fifties at Osmania University, and she said that she used to see Sada Sohagi Sufis come to the campus of Osmania University okay. to have discussions and debates with some of the Islamic studies professors, like Abdul Qadir Siddiqui, a very famous Sufi scholar who was a professor uh, at Osmania. And so these Sufis dressed as women would walk across Osmania campus in the 1950s. They were still there in the Deccan. So very fascinating, uh, rich, uh, socially diverse uh, manifestations of South Asian Sufism mm-hmm. uh, that Ali Muttaki was observing. And he said, no, no, let's, <laughs> pair, let, let's pair this all away and get back to the essentials. And for him, the essentials were to die before you die. The famous hadith of the Prophet, Mu'tu qabla An mu'tu, die before you die. And so his engagement was, let's say, extremely psychological on the one hand and extremely scholarly on the other, and very, very acerbic and ascetic in its social practice. So it was a strange, a strange mix of uh, psychologically very engaging but socially very critical. He didn't like the Sufism, that surrounded him. He thought everybody got it wrong, except himself. And just where that sounds very egotistical, he would say, well, I know that because I've died to my own ego. So uh, a very slippery character to try to analyze. Um, And it gets really complicated when, as you mentioned, he's engaging with ideas of the Mehdi. Because he was living in the build-up toward the year 1000 in the Islamic calendar. And that's yet another level of this book, right? (laughs) Is this kind of um, historical drumbeat that Muslim communities were feeling as the millennium was approaching. And there was a lot of speculation, a lot of fear, a lot of political adventurism that was fueled by expectations that the year 1000 would mark a breaking point and a new beginning um, and, and the Mughal emperors, for instance, Akbar, was able to capitalize on that in very important ways. Right, yeah. And there were competing Sufi reform movements like the Mahdavi movement. Um, that is the movement that, that followed Sayyid Muhammad Jampuri, mm-hmm. a great uh, Sufi ascetic who declared himself to be the Mahdi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and gathered a really um, influential following in Gujarat parts of Rajasthan and parts of the Deccan, there still is a a Medhavi movement. Um, They see themselves perhaps as a more settled and rather bourgeois sect nowadays. But in Hyderabad, there's a whole um, Medhavi community. They're Mm -hmm. very active. And the ultimate irony of doing my archival research, Shobana, is this. I should really write uh, uh, an ethnographic article on the weirdness of doing archival research. But it turns out, when I went to Hyderabad, where I was based, when I did a lot of this textual work and I had traveled and amassed a lot of these manuscripts of Ali Motaqi and I had to face the difficult task of sitting down and reading them, I employed a helper, a munshi, And he's a, he's a hero of the book, Tashrifullah Hussaini was his name. And we used to sit in the library of the Henry Martin Institute three days a week and pour over these manuscripts, and he would help me read them. And we're reading all of these biographies of Ali Mutaqi. We're reading all about his criticism of the Madhavi movement, and the criticism was really vocal and pretty mm-hmm. violent. And we did this for months and months and months. And finally, Tashrifullah, who was an old man at that time, gentleman of the old school, he looked at me, he said, so we've been reading this stuff about Ali Mutaqi for a long time. I said, yes, sir. We have. He said, well, what do you think of him? I said, well, you know, I think he was an amazing scholar and he's got some really fascinating ideas about Sufism and Tashrifullah was nodding and he said, yes, but what do you think about the Mahdi? And I looked at him. I said, well, I'm not sure what to say about that, but uh, obviously Ali Motaki really didn't like the Medavis. And Tashrifullah nodded. He said, yes, and he was totally wrong. (laughs) And I said, really? Why do you say that? And Tashrifullah Husseini got a serious look and said, I'm a Medevi. Oh, wow. I said, really? All these months you've been reading this with me and you said not a word. He said, it wasn't wasn't relevant. I was helping you to read. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. And then he said to me, why don't you come? And visit the Anjuman mm-hmm. of the Madhavi movement here in the old city of Hyderabad. I'd like you to. I'd like to introduce you to some of the scholars there. Mm-hmm. And so I went there and I met them. And some of them are descended from the people I write about in the
0: book. Oh wow!
1: I met a, a gentleman who was the, one of the secretaries of that Anjuman named Sayyid Khundamiri, mm-hmm. who's descended from the Sayyid Khundamir who I talk about in the book, who was a Medavi leader in the early period in Gujarat. And so, the people at the Anjuman had a completely different story about Ali Mutahi. Right. And, and why they had a story for why he was so bitter, and why he was so critical of the Medevis. And it has to do um, with, with his, let's say, uh, unsuccessful life. And that's an oral story that they still talk about. Like they're still arguing with Ali Mottakhi today. Right. right, right. Because he was such a vocal critic of their movement through his texts back in the 1500s. And so that was a kind of ethnographic moment for me where I thought, oh, okay, this stuff really is still alive, um, at least in certain corners and certain communities.
0: Yeah you should definitely write about that. That's like, that's a beautiful, amazing story. And which again, makes sense of why, like the vignettes are starting to make more sense to me in terms of, because there was life in everything that you were doing in this book, right? And so it's hard not to experience that and imagine that really. Um, one of the things um, I've, I'm so like, um, yeah, that story was quite amazing that I've like thrown off a little bit, but in a good way, in a good way.
1: Um, well, you know, It made me, it made me really love my helper, Mm -hmm. my munchie even more, even though, I mean, I was paying him a salary, right? Mm -hmm. To help me Mm -hmm. sort through these texts. Mm -hmm. And he was an expert in reading Shikasta, like reading this very quite difficult Persian handwritten script that many of these manuscripts were written in. So I, of course, I admired his ability Mm -hmm. to decipher the handwriting. um, But I, I learned to really admire his heart because no. what what restraint he had right. to not comment on anything that he was reading,
0: right? Yeah.
1: And it must have been so painful to him, right? As a follower of Sayyid Muhammad Jampuri to be reading all of these criticisms yeah. of his revered leader, he yeah. said not a word. Right. And I just thought, wow, what adab, really? Yeah. Um, and that may became a major theme of the book, actually. Right is that that Sufism is really about adab, and it's what many um, Muslim leaders today whether they're more fundamentalist or more reformist or more oriented toward hadith, hadith studies have missed mm. is that there's a kind of inner refinement that we call adab, which is required when one wants to step forward as a more scriptural or legal authority in Islamic communities. And Ali Motiki's work really highlights that, that adab is important. And I saw it personified in my Munchi, um, a Medavi scholar. But the Medavis in Hyderabad have kept alive Persian learning because it's key for them to access their own texts. So I've actually found that at least in Hyderabad, some of the best Persian scholars in universities and outside of them are Medavis because they haven't lost hold of that um, tradition of, of scholarly learning and i was really very lucky to benefit from it by nice. sitting with him for all those hours nice. when i was a graduate student
0: that's so beautiful Yeah. That's, that's well he's fast. passed
1: away now many of many of those great scholars have passed away
0: um, as I'm hearing you talk about Ali Muktaki and uh, this idea of adab, and the in the final chapter, the second to last chapter, I think you talk about the twilight of his life and his encounter with uh, this couplet, you know, this Persian couplet of Amir Khusro's poetry, and he completely this other part of him comes out, right? And which is so contradictory to everything that was leading up to that moment, right? So um, can you talk a little bit about that and like what that meant and how that informed? And I mean, we could read it. Um, I don't know yeah, if you let's can you find it. it, let's find it. It's on page 178, I marked it down. Thank you.
1: It's a weird moment. Um, yeah, so this was a time um, at the end of Ali Muttaki's life, he was getting old um, and he was also subject to various illnesses. Um, there was a time when people really thought he was dead or, you know, on his dying breaths. And, um, then he came back. Um, and when people expressed amazement, he said, well, why should it be amazing? I died to myself a long time ago, <laughs> so, he, that was his response to this. People were just stunned that he was still alive. Um, but at this time, he also had some strange psychological reversals. Mm-hmm. I guess you could call them Shulvana. I mean, he things that he criticized his whole life. He suddenly started to experience himself. Um, at one point, he claimed to be the Mehdi. After he'd spent his whole life fighting against the Mahdi movement back in Gujarat. Um, and then he quickly came to his senses and told everybody that was just a subjective experience. I didn't mean it. Right. Um, and we're left as modern readers to think, what was going on?
0: Right, right. And
1: I struggle a little bit to try to make sense of it, Um, and I had to really return to Freud and -hmm. psychoanalysis and think, well, what does it mean to have the return of the repressed? Mm -hmm. If you've spent your whole life not only repressing something in yourself, but trying to suppress it in other people, Mm -hmm. This, this urge to identify with the Mehdi and to think of the end of the world and embodying that cataclysmic, moment. And then in his own life, he has a hallucination or a spiritual experience where he thinks that he's the right, right. How did that well up within him? And one of the other things that happens to him at this time is that he begins to respond to poetry, especially the poetry of Amir Khusro that son in Qawwali, in a way that he had denounced right. in Sufi communities when he was a mature man, although he, it was part of his growing up as a young man, as a child. He was initiated into the Chishti Sufi order when he was a boy. Um, So it's that, uh, this one line of of Amir Khosrows that I had translated as, Never will I see a vision finer than your face's luminous beauty. I know no sun or moon as radiant, as lovely, no human or fairy. And the word there for fairy is, of course, putty, right? The the Persian word for a, a putty a heavenly fairy, sometimes used as a synonym for the Hoodies mm. of paradise. Um, so yeah, he heard that Persian verse and he kind of went into an ecstatic state when he was older. And of course he'd spent his whole mature life denouncing sort of uh, poetic Sufism or experiences of ecstasy. He wrote a whole book saying called Advice to Lovers, where he said, you know, it, don't get involved in love poetry and love poetry set to music and Sufism oriented to love, like the mazhab ishq that was so popular in the Chishti order Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: others, he said, if you're going to love something, love God. And how do you love God? You read the Quran, you learn about the Prophet's Hadith, you follow the Sharia. And you psychologically engage in the hard process of dying before you die. That's how you show love. That was his, you know, his life's mission is to argue that in Sufism. And at the end of his life, he's suddenly being sparked by lines from Amir Khusro as if his adult life had never happened. It's almost like he was reverting back to childhood Mm -hmm. and a, a kind of an earlier encounter with Sufism when it was suffused with poetry and music. So it, it's hard to interpret those twists and turns in his biography without a little bit of psychology and maybe even psychoanalysis.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it was fascinating, as, as you said, just to contrast from the earlier stages of his life to the latter. Um I know we won't be able to get into a lot of this and you spent a lot of time also, as you mentioned earlier, talking about some of the legacy that's maintained um, through his disciples, um, which is towards the end of the book. We're talking about memory and legacy. Um, So what are some of the ways, I guess, um, you know, you'd want listeners to know about how um, some of his disciples maintained his memory or his legacy or picked up his work and really brought it back to South Asia and informed some of the political and social contacts there or tried to at least.
1: Yeah, tried to, and had to transform it in significant ways for it to um, survive mm-hmm. in a Mughal South Asian context. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his major disciple, Abdul Wahab Mutaki, um, was a South Asian Sufi who came to Arabia to do the Hajj mm-hmm. and met Ali muttaqi and settled there. And... He so imbibed the teachings of Ali Mutaqi that he really became Ali Mutaki. Uh, his life is very boring and there's not much to say about him right. because he he simply disappeared mm-hmm. into his sheikh. In Sufism, we call that fanafi sheikh. Um, it's an important stage of Sufism in Sufi training is the idea of trying to submerge yourself in the personality of your sheikh he did it so well that he disappeared entirely (laughs) which i don't think is the purpose in in sufism but that's how he interpreted it and he spent his whole life writing down things that ali mutaki said Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and acted as his scribe and um, preserved his teachings and passed them on to a later generation but didn't do anything very exciting himself He tried to go back to Gujarat once um, and was uh, attacked, was almost assassinated. He had to climb over the wall of the compound of his house and escape. And he went back to Arabia and just said, okay, South Asia, forget it. I will preserve the textual and Sufi legacy of my teacher and those who want to come to Arabia and take it, I'll give it to them. So that that was his life. Um, And then Abdul Haq, Muhaddis Dilavi, came to Arabia and studied with Abdul Wahab Mutaqi, learned the teachings of Ali Mutaqi. And then he was a younger man and in many ways much more creative and energetic than Abdul Wahab Mutaqi. And so he kept his own personality and took these teachings back to South Asia, where he settled in Delhi, and he built a madrasa, he built a khanqa, He spread Sufi teachings. He also spread hadith uh, reports. And most historians of Islam in South Asia, I mean, the big names like K.A. Nizami and um, um, S.A.A. Rizvi, right, the people who who wrote the history of Sufism in South Asia, they always talk about Abdul Haq Muhaddis Delawi. And many people cite him as the reviver of hadith studies in South Asia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The idea being that, that traditionally, Hanafi jurists in South Asia didn't study hadith mm-hmm. reports very much. The Hanafi school in the medieval period didn't focus on hadith reports. Mm-hmm. And so it took somebody like Sheikh Abdul Haq, Muhaddis Delevi, to bring hadith studies back to South Asia from the circles that he found operating in and around Mecca and to really start teaching hadith in a creative, energetic and devotional way infused with Sufism, by the way, in Delhi. And that really, um, when Abdul Haq muhaddis Delevi settled back in Delhi and began to teach hadith, but infused with Sufism, that's when hadith studies really began to take off in South Asia. And it gave rise to then later intellectuals like Shah Waliullah Delevi, um, who's, who's so famous as the kind of last great Hadith scholar, as well as Sufi intellectual in um, the Mughal era. Mm-hmm. Somebody that Ahmad Dalal, a, a, a scholar whose work really influenced this book, um, who wrote a book, Islam Before Europe, looking mm-hmm. at reform traditions in the Arab world and South Asia, and really highlighting the creative genius of Shah Waliullah. But Shah Waliullah was only enabled because Sheikh Abdul haq Muhaddas Delevi had already revived the study of hadith in a Sufi environment in Delhi. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the legacy that then gets passed on to the modern world. Um, and because most scholars start that history either with Shah Waliullah or several generations earlier with Sheikh Abdul Haq Muhaddas Delevi, they don't take it back even further and look at, at Sheikh Ali Muttaqi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that that was what I was trying to um, recover let's right. say for right. for contemporary scholars is that older and sort of lost chapter of history
0: yeah.
1: and uh, an earlier engagement of sufism with hadith studies in Sheikh Ali Muttaqi.
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, as we're wrapping up our conversation, is there anything else that perhaps, I know we didn't get to a lot of stuff, but is there anything that you'd want our listeners to know before? Um, I mean, hopefully they pick up the book and engage it. Um, but... mm.
1: Yeah. There's one last thing, which I just think is the most amazing document that I encountered in this whole work. Sure. Sure. And that is a letter written by uh, Abdul Haq Muhaddes Delawi. And he wrote many letters. His son collected them in a book. Um, But one of the letters was written to a Mughal nobleman. Right, okay. Yeah, you know this. And he starts with a story. You like the story of the tiger?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazing story. He says, imagine you're a man and you realize you're being chased by a tiger and you run and run and run and the tiger's getting closer and closer and closer and you see an empty well So you jump down the well to escape the tiger and you grab onto some roots or some grass that's hanging over the edge. And you look down at the bottom of the well and there's a giant serpent that's going to eat you if you drop into the well. And there's a tiger sitting at the lip of the well looking at you hungrily, who's going to eat you if you climb up. And you're suspended between these two terrible fates. And what do you do? And he goes on and he makes this beautiful allegorical story about our human condition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, and why Sufism is important,
0: right?
1: Right, Because for, for Sheikh Abdul Haq, Sufism is the solution mm-hmm. to this conundrum. And it, it goes on. There are, there's bees, there are mice, <laughs> you know, it's like the animal kingdom begins yes. to plague you from all sides as this poor man is dangling in the well. Yes. And yet I think, You know, it was written in the 1600s to a Mughal nobleman, but I think all of us can read it and understand deeply what he's talking about, Mm -hmm. which for me was just a magical moment of communication across centuries and across religious traditions, Mm -hmm. right? Anybody reading that story can go, oh, my God, I can imagine myself, you know. Mm -hmm. If the the tiger is fate and the serpent is, you know, judgment – and the mice gnawing at the grass are time. Right. We are all trapped in the same human predicament. Right. Searching for answers and searching for a way out. And so Sheikh Abdul Haq was, was giving this Mughal nobleman a way out, but at the same time had a political agenda. Right. right. He was writing to a Mughal nobleman right. and trying to say, convey these ideas to the new Emperor Jahangir. Right. Let's right. let's Let's create a social reform movement that might reorient a South Asian Islamic community in new and engaging ways. So that was an amazing document among many that I discovered. And I I translated a lot of it in in full just because I thought it was so um, enlivening and um, just so, um, what's the right word? Uh, Entrancing. You know, when you read it, you just, you, you, there's no time or space between you and this um, 17th century Islamic scholar.
0: Mm-hmm. He's speaking
1: directly to you, no yeah. matter who you are. Right. You know. So.
0: Yeah, and reading that story in the present moment, it felt like, oh, this is what's happening with the world. <laughs> Talk about existential
1: dread, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great, lovely. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I remember that story because it felt really real in this immediate moment and not like, you know, the 16th century or something like, like the Mughals are coming, but somebody else is coming, you know, so yeah.
1: <laughs> right, right. But it should give you strength to know that people have been struggling with this, you know, forever, right? Every generation thinks that they're in a in a unique crisis, right. a, a unique moment of existential challenge.
0: That's fantastic. Um. So. Again, like such an amazing book, all the, the translation, all the resources, just all around, just wonderful. Um, I, I, I hope you're taking a break and rejuvenating and recovering. I know you're busy with teaching and all this stuff, but is there like a new project on the horizon that you'll get to after you're rested and relaxed and all this stuff, or are there things you're hoping to switch to or uh, in terms of work? Well,
1: I am trying not to decide.
0: Good. Okay. Quickly,
1: right? As you said, you need a, you need to, to rest and you need to give your brain a, a, a break. And, um, but I, I wrestled between two uh, possible projects. Um, and one is a book on kawali. Um, I've wanted to write a book on kawali for a long time. Um, and I spent a lot of time on a sabbatical leave, in India, listening to Qawwali and making recordings of ritual Qawwali at important or moments. Some of the, um, the the recordings that are ended up in this Hajj to the Heart book in the digital enhanced version came from that period. Mm-hmm. But there's so much more. I have I have hundreds of hours of Qawwali recorded. Um, and I it would be wonderful to try to translate and interpret some of the lyrics in their ritual and their musical context to be a resource book for, cause there's so many people who love kawali, but they only listen to it on YouTube or they only know Nusrat Ali Khan, or they only know Coke studios, you know, and they listen to the jazzier versions and they, they lose track of, or they don't have access to the more ritual uses of kawali, which are its real origins. So, um, you know, Regula Qurayshi did tremendous work on this in the 1970s and 80s. And there have been some attempts by scholars to build on the foundation that she laid. But there hasn't been a real major study of qawwali in a long time, even though there's a, a, a massive proliferation of qawwali in popular media and film and recordings. So there's a the real imbalance there. And um, that's one thing I think I could do. It's very hard to write about music though. Right,
0: right, yeah.
1: yeah. So that's gonna take more experimentation um, about what kind of prose to use, what kind of methods to to employ. How do you write about music on a flat page? It's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one possible project. And another is to really, um, look at the history of Sufism in South Asia mm-hmm. through the lens of um, gender and sexuality studies. And I've made small attempts at that, yep. you know, in the past, but to really do a whole book on it. And I guess, you know, in, in our conversation, we talked about um, Sheikh Musa, Sada Suhag. From Ahmedabad, and you could sense my excitement. Yes. You know, he's one of the one of the the Sufis that have been forgotten or neglected, um, who really had a, just a fascinating engagement with transgender performance. Mm-hmm. And um, there are many other stories that are lost in the footnotes or the archives right. that could be brought forward. Right. Um, right. And so that's another uh, project that I could work on.
0: Oh wow. I want you to do both of them very soon. I'll be ready Thanks. to read both of them. Yeah, i um, I love all your work, and I've been inspired by all your work. So I think I'm just excited for anything else that'll come down. And both of those like sound super fantastic. And I know everybody, the listeners, will be excited about them once that once their time has come. But yeah, um, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so grateful that we got to connect and speak about this fantastic new book and all the all the behind the scenes about the book as well. And hopefully the listeners will download the uh, digital version or get the hard copy if they would like and. Engage more of it since we obviously couldn't cover all of it. But thank you. This has been absolutely my pleasure and I'm grateful.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak.
0: And that was my conversation with Scott Kugel about his fantastic new book, Heads to the Heart, Sufi Journeys Across the Indian Ocean. I hope you will download the open access book available online, um, which is linked with this podcast write up. But thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, stay well and take good care.